Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That, a podcast with me, Dave Moore, him, Neil Delamere, and you, the wonderful listener, without whom this would just be two men shouting into the abyss. <laughs> Let's be honest. We are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network and very glad to have you here with us today. Uh, it is a Neil Delamere-led episode, and we should say that a lot of people have been in touch with us to give us ideas for episodes, and you can do that on the wonderful world of social media. Uh, we are on them all. You can find them all in our link tree. You'll find our link tree in the notes of this episode, wherever you listen to this episode. But basically, he is at Neil Delamere Comedy on Instagram. I am at Dave Today FM. The show is at Why Would You Tell Me That? So go there and anything you would like us to cover. We love suggestions. We take them on board. Ask people. They'll tell you they've even come on the show as experts after having gotten in touch with us. Uh, so do that on Instagram. Get in touch with us and we will hopefully get more episodes out of you guys. Yes, um, we've had several people get involved and then we th- they have given us the germ of an idea, the kernel of an idea, and then we've gone with it and produced great episodes. So thanks very much to the listeners for getting involved. This, hopefully, is another great episode. Oh, man, I can't wait to tell you about this. There's a couple of things in this. This has layers, Dave. There's textures to this. There's pictures I'm going to show you. There's sound clips. There's celebrity guests. What? This is, this is, I'm looking forward to this one. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, Neil Delamere, I and we, the listeners, are here for you to entertain us. So what have you got? Okay. In part two, we're going to talk about why it might be a good thing to have a tooth in your eye. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... We've all sustained strange rugby injuries over the years, but a tooth in your eye is a good thing. It is in certain circumstances to have a tooth, t- a tooth, a tooth, I don't know why, to have a tooth put in your eye. Um, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. All right, Mrs. Brown, calm down there. <laughs> yeah. Um, to have a tooth, specifically a canine tooth of your own, put, into your, put into your eye might be a good thing. So hang on, medically. Medically. Someone is going to put your canine from your mouth into your eye and you're going to go, thanks doc, that's exactly what I needed. Yes. I like the way you say, take your canine from your mouth and put it into your eye. If they're taking your canine tooth from any other part of your body, I would suggest you have a visual and possibly significant (laughs) other problem. You're the fellow suggesting you stick it in your eye. It's already in another part according to you. So I'm just trying to be as weird as you. Okay. We're going to be joined in part two by ophthalmic surgeon Arthur Cummings and he will explain it all. And he'll also tell us about the surprising history of eye operations. They have been around for an awful lot longer than you might think. But I'll let him deal with that. Much like if we ever have an an anaesthetist on this show. (laughs) An anaesthetist. 
How many hours of practice did you work on ophthalmic surgeon? It took ages. Yeah. It, I mean, one more go and it was going to be eye doctor. I'll yeah. be honest with you. <laughs> like, there's so many difficult medical jobs that like, I think if you got one, I would go for the most difficult to pronounce. I mean, if there was somebody who could be an ophthalmic anesthesiologist, like I would just have that on my business card and go, knock yourself out, lads. Try and introduce me on that one. Hold on. You're going to say it to an anesthetist, knock yourself out. <laughs> You didn't do that on purpose, did you? No, no I'm not that clever. <laughs> did you know that I no, no, I went to anesthetist, just this is. Yeah. And he said, look, you can either like sniff this jar or I can whack you in your head with this implement I use to row a boat. It was an ether or situation. Oh, get out. Get. <laughs> you will not be doing the remnants of your bad jokes. Uh, segment on your radio show on this podcast. I will have you know that I never used that on the radio show because it wasn't good enough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, the, the dregs, the the stuck, the, the, the wee that is stuck to the bowl the next morning. <laughs> I once, I actually genuinely, I genuinely, genuinely once dated an anaesthetist. Okay. Yeah, we didn't work out. I just couldn't feel anything. <laughs> I... I hope you, re- you genuinely are you regretting doing this podcast. I hope you genuinely do know Anissa this because I'm going to drive around your house and beat you to death with a hurl if you keep doing this. Okay, but no, I reserve the right to do at least two terrible things now because you've done okay, bad jobs. Okay, okay, that. okay. Oh, okay. I was going to make this easy. I'm going to make this hard now. Oh, okay. Um, well, well. Before we get to part two, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take a little detour. I have a little surprise for you. When I did Celebrity Mastermind, spoiler alert. One by eight points. Um, the man is a genius, lads. You recognise this this fairly momentous achievement in my life, but also said that you would be very handy on a certain specialist subject. And what was it? The specialist subject would be Father Ted. Right, okay. I decided to see if this assertion could be tested. Oh, come on. I, I haven't had any chance to study. You studied Vikings before you went on with your special subjects. I did study this, but you have gone on about how you have been on your radio show and you have come up against various different people. You've never been beaten by a super no. fan on no. the show. So I decided I would do one better than that. I asked Ardlo Hanlon, <gasps> Father Dougal. Father Dougal Maguire. Father Dougal Maguire from Father Ted to set two questions. Oh, Jesus. Look, I mean, okay. This is unfair on a number of levels, but go ahead. Oh, oh there's a, there are a number of levels about how unfair this is. This is an Escher painting of unfairness. Okay, if you're talking about levels. So the first thing, I think you get the first one. I don't think you get the second one. I'm going to play it now, okay? Oh, it's a, you got audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen. Questions for Dave. What is the reg plate of Dougal's milk float? Second question. It's a difficult one. What is Mrs. Doyle's first name? <laughs> now, my favourite bit about that is the laugh at the end. <laughs> did you hear that? End? I so, did. So we've got two questions. What was the reg plate of the milk float in one of the most famous episodes of Father Ted ever? And then the almost impossible question. What was Mrs. Doyle's first name? To win Celebrity Mastermind. Yes. Dave Moore says the following. Yes. The registration plate yes. is C.I. 15. Oh my God, that's right. Okay. Okay. No, I kind of thought you might get that. I'm not that surprised by that. Okay. And you're correct. It is a difficult question to answer as yeah. to what is Mrs. Doyle's first name. In fact, yeah. it's, it's a joke in the show. Yeah. That as they're trying to name Mrs. Doyle, incidents keep happening where noises happen as they say her first name. 
do you mean Mrs. And then it's like a plate drops. Doyle. They can't say her name. So the only place you'll ever find her name. Yes. Is in a book called the Craggy Island Chronicles, which is a book produced by Arthur and Graham after the show. And it's got lots of little hints and little tidbits that are not available in the broadcast episodes. And Mrs. Doyle's first name. I don't even know if I should reveal this to the general public, but I'm going to say it. Her first name is. Oh, my God, that's right. <laughs> oh, I'm so sick. And... <laughs> I'm so sick. And... To the extent that when I asked Arthur to come up with the question, he said it's. But I don't think it's recorded anywhere. But I know this because me and Arthur, who wrote it, one of the writers of it, have discussed what her first name was. So I asked you a question that I didn't think there was an actual source. And you got it right. You've gone beyond Celebrity Mastermind to Celebrity Weirdo that is genuinely worrying. Okay, I'm so I'm, I'm so impressed with that. I'm sickened and impressed. And by the way, I saw Art Lohan recently in Dancing at Lunasa in a play wow. well, a few months ago. Brian Friel. And do you know the name of his character? It's not Dougal, is it? No, it's Father Jack. Is it? He plays different priests. Oh, wow. Absolutely excellent. Okay, well done. I'm going to drop it. I'm so glad I didn't bet you because I was going to bet you I will give you my Celebrity Mastermind uh, trophy. (laughs) I was fully convinced you couldn't get that. I would love that. I'm now sickened, but I'm very, very impressed. Okay, we'll park that. Great stuff. Great stuff. S- right. Sickened and impressed is all I ever aim for when <laughs> dealing with any other human. Like that's all I want. Like <laughs> uh, part one, we're going to go down to rabbit hole, David. Uh, I love rabbit we're, holes. We're talking about vision in part two. Yeah. So I was looking at the eye in the animal kingdom, right? And we got eagles and hawks and birds of prey and raptors in particular are, are very famous for for their eyes. Okay, yeah. so I was kind of looking in that area, but um, that is not the best thing that hawks do. Bit. Okay. In Australia, <laughs> there are birds that start fires. Um, on purpose? <laughs> I mean, like, what? <laughs> these... Yeah, yeah. This is the, these birds meet up and go, it's a quick insurance job. Hand me the petrol and the oily rag. The surf club hang has on, to go. On. Are these penguins from the movie Madagascar? And they're going, hey, no. buddy, we arrived in Australia. We fell off the boat. Let's burn some stuff down and see if we can make a racket. Is that is that what they sound like? I haven't seen Madagascar in ages. They're like these kind of hey, yeah, you know, th- those people that they should be slapped by Humphrey Bogart if they've lost well, run themselves. I, I may have, I'm, yeah, I may have aged them in. in maybe they're Italian Americans. Maybe they're more. Hey, we arrived here from you know. We want to make some fires and make some money. Make people scared that they're going to lose their business. I don't know. I can't okay. remember. But they're definitely some kind of American gangsters you don't want to mess with. Whether well, they're okay. in the so, in the Prohibition era or the kind of fifties, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because what you gave me at the start there wasn't so much The Sopranos. It was more like a St. Valentine's Day Massacre yeah. holding a Tommy gun while on the running board of a large kind of... Get your run. keister off my property, you <laughs> filthy animal! James James Cagney. Yeah, 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 all that, all that, yeah, all that. Yeah. You filthy animal. Um, no, they're, they're called firehawks, right? right? Or as I like to call them, prodigy birds. Um, or uh, the anti-Billy Joel birds in that they very much did start the fire. <laughs> <laughs> they are they're the black kite, the whistling kite and the brown falcon, right? So right. let me explain this. Yeah. This is so cool. In interviews and observations and ceremonies dating back for more than 100 years, the indigenous peoples of the Northern Territory in Australia, if you've ever been there, it's a, you know, the area around Dar- uh, Darwin, it's Darwin, a huge, yeah. huge place. Yeah. Um, they maintain that a collective group of birds that they call firehawks can control fire by Carrying burning sticks to new locations in their in their beaks 
or talons because what happens in in a bushfire right these birds they hover on the front of of the edge of the fire right and all the animals that they might eat or a lot of the animals they might eat like rodents and snakes and lizards run away from the fire and they just stand there imagine you in say a cinema right and you're just lying on the ground and i've stood above you and opened all the pick and mix drawers yeah. and you're just going ah all all the malt balls are just rolling into my mouth <laughs> Yeah, and those teeth, you know, those yes. things that look like teeth. And yeah. you're trying not to put, put them in your eye, but I go, ah, wait till part two. <laughs> That's what these animals are doing, right? They're, so they're using, there's a naturally occurring smorgasbord, yeah. which yeah. is fire, <laughs> means that means that the dinner runs out from the fire into their gobs. But then have they learned that, oh, so if I start fire over here, the lads who aren't currently getting burnt will leg it into my gob. This is the suggestion. I love the idea of the smorgasbord. I love the idea of two hawks just chatting to each other going, he's overdone. And then we'll set a fire up over there. Australians love barbecues, apparently, according to according to myth. So yeah. apparently the animals are doing this now as well. It, it's especially you made it sound like meatballs in Ikea or something like this or the middle aisle of it, little. But the lads have lost the run themselves anyway, these birds. But the anecdotes, they've been compiled into, into a recent study, which was a couple of years ago, and put into the Journal of Ethnobiology. Right. Now, the suggestion is that now some ornithologists are saying, actually, we don't believe this. Um, what happens is a firehawk goes for a rodent, misses the rodent, grabs a burning ember of something, and just then just realizes, yeah, it doesn't have the, okay. the toasted gecko or whatever he wants to eat <laughs> and he drops it somewhere else yeah and um, but you're talking about well over 100 years of collected documentary evidence yeah. documentary evidence from uh, people whose peoples have lived there for 40 to fifty thousand years yes and there's a 1964 autobiography of uh, uh of a man called Y and I apologize if I've mispronounced this Wypoldania Philip Roberts and it's called I the Aboriginal it's a 1964 autobiography mm. of Roberts it was compiled by an Australian journalist uh, Douglas Lockwood and uh, he said I have seen a hawk picking up a small drink stick in its claws and drop it in a fresh pass of dry grass half a mile away oh god then wait with its mates for a mad exodus of scorched and frightened rodents and reptiles you see that definitely implies, like, no bird that thinks it's getting a warmed up rat mm. but has a scorching hot coal is going to carry that mistakenly for half a mile. Because that bird is going to pick it up, go, look down and go, ah, it's burning my toes, it's burning my toes, and let go. Like, if it's carrying a half a mile, it is absolutely going, I know where Rodent Town is, I'm going to go over there and burn the swear words out. And then, yum, yum, yeah. yum, yum, yum. Yeah, this is a podcast. Well, I know, but I'm, want. Still, I'm, a, I'm still a nice boy, you f oh. <laughs> Don't be such a about it, man. <laughs> it, but, it, you know, that it, it, he is going, they know exactly what they're doing, yeah. uh, and they're setting a fire in another part, and it is now in, in that journal, and the researchers are are trying to get documentary evidence of this, like, on film. I mean, I personally think, is it doing an impression of a dragon? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there a is bad one. Yeah, there is. Um, have I told you that amazing story of there's kind of the reverse myth while we're talking about mastermind in in Viking lore. King Harald Hardrada was uh, once. This is a great story. It's a, it's a legend, right? Yeah, he was yeah. once besieging this town in Sicily, and he couldn't get out of Sicily. 
he couldn't get the, the villagers out of the town or the townspeople out of the town. And he noticed that the birds that lived in the town were, were roosting in the town, but they were flying into the forest and they were eating in the forest and then they'd fly back to the town. So he got his men to catch the birds, tie little kindling to their legs, set the kindling on fire. Birds flew back into the town, set the town on fire and ended the siege. Wow. Yeah. So this is a story that's been around for a while, told about sure. different people, but it's King sure. Harold Hadrada. And like many people before and since, the townsfolk said, what has caused this burning sensation? And thrush was the answer. <laughs> now, that's two one. Two one to me. Your terrible jokes. It's two one. So while I was looking at those birds, because it's Australian wildlife, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, okay. It absolutely is. It's not the best wildlife Australia fact I've read this week. Okay. I'm going to send you a picture of okay. a particularly delightful marsupial. Um, it's called a quokka. Oh, I do love a quokka. Okay, can you see this? Yes. I've have you come it. across these before? I have. I have. Okay. Do you know the fact I'm going to tell you? No, the only thing I know about quokkas mm. is that they smile. Now, they don't They don't smile like they're happy. Their, their natural resting face is in is the way you would, if you were drawing an animal, a small marsupial or maybe a cat or whatever, and you were drawing them smiling, you would draw a line down from their nose and then curl it up. That's the way they're kind of, I'm going to say the word lips, I don't know if they have lips, but that's the way the surrounding of their mouth is. They literally look like they're beaming and especially when they're eating something sweet. So uh, that's all I've ever seen about quokkas. I love them. So generally very cute. All like we can kind of easily anthropomorphize them. They look lovely and sweet and they're about yeah. the size of a cat. Lovely little cute marsupial. Let me tell you something and see if I can change your mind. Okay. Quokka throw their young at predators to escape. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> so see that cute little thing there? You, you come at her, you attack her, and she's like, take the child. I didn't want them. The condom broke. Take it. I only had it case I needed an organ transplant. Don't eat me. Oh what you God. need is a starter. That's like, what they do. This, this is the threat that as children, we all got from our parents, which was like, because I mean, look, things have changed. You know, we live in the we live in the future now. We must be respectful to our children. Yes. We must never threaten them with a wooden spoon. You can't smack a child. You know, you must. I, I'm listening to your opinions as they pour a gallon of milk and some cornflakes on the ground and stare at you straight dead in the eyes and go, you clean it up. And you go, of course, my child, I have listened to your expression of rage. You yeah. know, this, it's, it's, it all happens. However, yeah. I distinctly remember in the 70s and 80s being told that if I didn't behave, tidy my room, do the dishes, whatever it is, that the man would come yes. and take me away. The yes. quacker is literally saying to the child, we're about to be eaten. I'm going to throw you at the dingo. And <laughs> if you don't clean your room, I'm literally going to throw you at a monitor lizard. Knock yourself out. Yeah, yeah. this is this. I mean, I don't know. Like, if it was a quacker who really disliked a child, Dingo wasn't even in the vicinity. The Dingo was walking nearby. And then, whoom, this baby quacker. Full on Doppler effect. I don't know what noise Doppler, a Doppler influenced quacker makes. So I'm slightly exaggerating, but not really. Right? No. So 
It's about, about the size of a cat now, right? If people, if you've been to Perth, you would have seen the quokka. They're lovely and they're they're stronghold, <laughs> stronghold. They're, they're <laughs> so make them sound like the Gaelic chieftains. They're stronghold. Territory. While, <laughs> they're Irish. Irish language is dying out everywhere else. But Reg Hugh O'Donnell was very powerful in Donegal. So yeah, the stronghold of the quokka was around Ballyshannon. No, it is Rotnest Island, which is uh, near Perth. Right. Um, that's where there's loads of them now. Um, obviously gotcha. they were more gotcha. widespread before that. Well, I'm not surprised they're dying out because you know, they keep throwing their progeny at predators. <laughs> like, well, why are, I don't understand. Marie, why is it we have no kids left? I don't know, Sharon. I mean, I chucked my last two at a passing Mercedes there a while back <laughs> to see what the crack was. You got any left? No, I've none. No, no, no. Okay, hold on. Throwing at them at a passing Mercedes, you've gone from survival to very much a game. Like... Yeah. Beer pong, where you throw your child at the front of an A-class. And if it sticks in the grill, you get two points. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So uh, apparently, I say at, okay, they don't really throw them at, but they do certainly throw them. So the pouch is really muscular. So the mam will relax it and the little bambino will fall out. And I'm reading an article in front of me right now by a conservation biologist, Matthew Hayward from the University of Newcastle. Mm -hmm. And several uh, macropods do this. It's a strategy to get away from from predators. Potteroos do it as well. They all throw their young. Is it the, their, I would say logic. No, there is a logic. Yeah, go on. Their their instinct is, if I survive, I can have another breed, you know, another, 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 litter or whatever they have of of babies whereas if i'm gone he's going to eat me and eat the baby yeah basically from an evolutionary point of view it makes sense because the mother has already proven that she's fertile yes right so i've had a kid now have this sacrifice also she has survived her own mother threatening to throw her at the dingo Oh, wow. Hold on. Now, let me try and figure that one out. <laughs> what, what is this? If the top is spinning at the end, that's reality? Or well, I can't remember what. That's conception and inception at the yep, same time is what you've done there. No wonder I'm they're not. always smiling. Because she's like, I'm not attached to anything in this world. I'm free. It's like that scene in Heat. I can just click my hands and walk out on anything right now. <laughs> Include you, Joey. I can walk out in 30 seconds on anything and anything in my whole life. <laughs> That's essentially it. Okay, so bushfires uh, are Armageddon for wildlife in in that sense. And and I was thinking about what is Armageddon for us, right? Have you ever heard of Stanislav Petrov? Stanislav Petrov. I mean, I lived in Russia for a year. I studied Russian. I speak Russian. Have I ever heard of him specifically? No. Um, I keep calling him Stylian Petrov. We used to play for Celtic and Villa. He did. So Stanislav Petrov died in 2017, okay. and you could argue that he saved more people than anybody else in the world. Wow. Could argue this. I mean, you could also argue maybe it's Alexander Fleming or someone who discovered penicillin or, sure. or some of the people, some of the scientists who have changed how we produce food, right? But let me argue for Stanislav for a second. Okay. Lieutenant Colonel, uh, he was on duty in a secret command center outside Moscow in 1983, the 26th of September to be specific. Height of the Cold War 1983, remember? Yeah, this is, absolutely. This is two years before Rocky takes on Ivan Drago, so I mean, we're pretty... We might even be around the time that Sting is writing the song Russians. I mean, I'm not sure exactly of the date, but it's in and around. We are at the height. We're at the height of it. So he's sitting there, and a radar screen shows him that five Minutemen intercontinental ballistic missiles have been launched by the US towards the Soviet Union. And he's sitting there 
presumably banging the side of the screen going, please, 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 please let this be a mistake. Please, please, please. Please let this be random quokka babies who have been chucked from Australia by a really powerful mother. No, Yeah, there was a firehawk holding a missile in its gob. Yeah. And deciding to move it from Utah to outside Moscow. So he's, he's sitting there and this is what he says. The siren howled, but I just sat there for a few seconds staring at a big backlit red screen with the word launch on it. Mm-hmm. So his mission at this point is his protocol in the Red Army is to send the the order up the line and go, this is what has happened. And then the Soviet Union orders a retaliatory strike on the US and now we get into nuclear war and we all die and our faces melt off and we're all dead. Absolutely. 44 years of age and he decides, um, no, I'm going to ignore it. And he he relies on gut instinct to tell him that this is a false alert. Gut instinct. Gut instinct. What saved the world, Dave? Actimel. If I hadn't taken my bifidus digestium that morning, we would all be toast. Yakult. Um, so hang on. Like, where's your gut instinct that there are these five ballistic missiles on my radar? My only job, my, my literal raison d'etre in my work is to keep an eye out for one, possibly two, maybe five ballistic missiles coming in on this thing. They come in and his gut instinct goes, nah, nah, nah. Probably. It's probably a glitch. Glitch in the matrix. He calls in a, a malfunction in the early warning system, right? right? He didn't know he was doing the right thing because like he's basing this on nothing but his good instinct. Yeah, yeah. And he says, 23 minutes later, I realized that nothing had happened. If there'd been a real strike, then I would already know about it. Yeah, I think you might already know about it. All right. <laughs> Hang on. He didn't even like alert anybody to even his gut instinct reaction. He just sat there and went, sure, look, we'll see what happens. I don't think this is this is. Uh, uh, he called in a malfunction yeah he just went nah it's the early warning system nah 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 it's grand and he was sorry and he was right it was a a malfunctioning early warning system well let's just examine that question we're alive (laughs) well yeah no I know that (laughs) but I mean I don't it doesn't mean to say that the the Americans didn't send bombs you know past Russia to no do you know know what it was no it was the result of a satellite mistaking the reflection of the sun's rays off the top of clouds. Jesus. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, the best time to stop um, a, a retaliatory strike is 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 before it happens. Yes, And it there's, is. there's no good time to ring the Americans after you've bombed them and gone. Funny story, lads. Oh, you won't believe this. Sputnik was baiting around and she just gave us the wrong info. This <gasps> gas, lads. Yeah, yeah. The reflection off, off the television when the start of The Simpsons was on. And we thought that was Saws. We thought that was the start of the end of everything. Uh, but anyway, we've sent you a bottle of Stolly uh, with our apologies. And so he did this, right? And people didn't know about this. Yeah. This wasn't known till till late 90s, 98, when um, the retired commander of the Soviet Missile Defense published his, his memoirs. And then in the following years, Petrov achieved worldwide recognition for, right, for what he did. So. Yeah. And yet here, here I am in 2023, still not knowing about this guy until you told me now. Yeah, he was um, reprimanded by the authorities, apparently, for failing to describe the incident correctly in the logbook that night. Right. 
So they didn't go, you've saved more people than anybody else in the world. You're no. an absolute genius. Thanks a million. Um, and our satellite got it wrong. But, you know, you, you can always spin it. You could always say he's so well trained. We, I don't know, we train our Tell the difference between soldiers. the top of clouds yeah. and missiles. Yeah. No, their reaction was, you did not feel in correct form. You will have no bread for next week. Yeah, that's what happened. But Jeez, he's, What a I, hero. It's not, it's not not a bad shout for the person who saved more people than anybody else. Petrov, legend. But did he have a tooth in his eye? No, he didn't. Unlikely. Know. And we'll find out why you might want one in part two with doctor and ophthalmic surgeon <laughs> Arthur Cummings. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm delighted to say we are joined now by consultant ophthalmic surgeon Arthur Cummings. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Arthur. That's my great pleasure. So in part one, right, all I told Dave was I'd explain why you might want a tooth in your eye. So it's just even a weird sentence as I say it. But before we get to that, because I like to tease him. He um, does, always. It is to do with a surgical procedure. That's why you're on the show. Uh, But eye procedures and eye operations go back much further in history than people might think, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. I think some of the oldest procedures are recorded 5,000 years ago. Most, what? Yeah, 5,000 years ago. And then some 600 years BC in India, they had the same recording of this thing called couching. So that was for, for people with cataracts. 
Okay, so what I mean, forgive me, my, my ignorance would have led me to believe that, you know, laser eye surgery was the birth of surgery because let's face it, it's a very delicate organ. In my, as I'm going to say, understanding, I have no understanding of the eyes, but, you know, I would imagine it's a delicate organ so that you would need some kind of, you know, surgical implements to do the kinds of job you're talking about. But 5,000 years ago, or even 600 years BC, I mean, what, what how do you go about an operation in that era? Yeah, that was so bizarre, Dave, is all they realized is some people were, were really not being able to see anymore and they were developing dense cataracts. And when a cataract's really dense and over-mature, it goes white. So your pupil is white and you can see this person simply can't see. So what they did is they simply made instruments, really sharp instruments, and penetrated the eye. And this is now without any sort of anesthetic, there was nothing like that. So they would penetrate the eye, they would sort of engage with the lens, this white thing behind the pupil, and then dislodge it. And they push it into the back of the eye. So now this lens lands up in the back of the eye. And the lens, it's interesting, the human lens is fascinating. First of all, it's, its embryology is from the same structure as skin, nails, and hair. So the lens never stops growing. It's one oh, crazy. Wow. Oh, That's wow. why we become presbyopic, where you can't read anymore in your mid-40s. That's why you eventually get cataracts. And the second thing about the lens is the lens is more protein-rich than muscles. So you've got this organ now that you've dislodged into the back of the eye. If you happen not to hurt the retina, and the retina, there's only a small little window that you've got to put a needle through where you don't hurt the retina, um, then the patient may benefit. So the lens drops into the back of the eye, and so there's a clear pathway again. You're not in focus, but at least you've got what they call navigational vision. So you know if it's day or night, you know if there's a doorway or an entrance to a cave or whatever it might be. Right. Um, you can, you've got navigational vision, but you know previously you might have had nothing. So they've put a needle into your eye. We should explain, uh, cataract is the same word as waterfall. So it's basically where the, the, the lens becomes cloudy and they stick a needle in your eye and they, they, they don't dislodge the, the lens from your eye. They push it further down into, into the eye, right? So it's knocking around the back of your eye at this point. That's exactly right. So Neil, you know, um, people are often con confused with cataracts. I think cataracts are things that grow over your eye, but it's really where the lens itself changes. So the two of you, your lenses are clear, they're crystal clear. And the best analogy is thinking of an egg that you're frying in a frying pan. Mm. So when you put the egg in the frying pan, you see the yolk. And around the yolk, you can clearly see through the, the clear part. You can see the pan. That's what your lens looks like. But then as you start developing a cataract, it's exactly the same way things change as the egg starts frying. And eventually that transparent part becomes white and then yellow, brown, black, depending on how, you know, how long it cooks for. And that's exactly what's happening to your own lens. It's just denaturation of the proteins in the lens. So Dave, if you think that's weird, right? That, that might seem like kind of logical. You stick the needle in the eye and you move the thing. You take the frosted glass from the front of the bathroom door, Dave. That's right. what you're doing. You're gotcha. pushing it into the door, but now there's nothing there, but at least you can see through the nothing, right? Okay, okay. But then around the same time, you're talking about 600 BC, they developed this ECCE, extracapsular cataract extraction. So this is where you, you take the whole thing out of your eye This at this point. You're right about extracapsular extraction. It's removing the lens. That happened only in the 60s or the 50s, somewhere around there. So that's only the last 70 or so years that extracap was done. So the, the whole evolution of, of lens surgery, there's only four phases. The first one is the one you've mentioned about couching, taking okay. the lens, pushing it into the back of the eye. The next development was something called an intracapsular cataract extraction. So that's ICCE, I-C-C-E. What happened there is you'd make quite a big incision into the eye, 
put a probe inside the eye. The more modern approach back in the 50s and 60s was a probe that could freeze and it froze the lens and then you sort of wiggled it, leaf rods, ligaments and extracted the entire lens. And that was in the era where you weren't putting a new lens in. Mm. So you didn't need support for a new lens. So what happened after that surgery is you would wear a thick pair of glasses. So the lens inside your eye was now in the glasses outside. So they'd be very, very thick Coke bottle type glasses that would massively magnify. If anyone looked at them, all they would see would be the eyeballs. So that's icky. And then in the 60s, 70s, they started with icky. So what happened with icky is this was an extra capsule of cataract extraction where the contents of the lens was removed. So the front of the lens was opened. The inside part of the lens was sort of hydrodissected. So it means loosened up with water from the, the capsule. And then that was almost delivered through a big incision. And once the lens was delivered, you could now put a new intraocular lens. You put an artificial lens. Right. Thanks to the big incision, you had to put sutures in. And then fascinatingly, like many things in life, is this development came from financial burden. What happened to cataract surgery fees across the world is the fees started coming down. And so surgeons figured they couldn't make a living anymore because the procedures were taking too long for what they were being paid. And they realized that the part that took longest was putting in all the sutures. So they then started finding out ways of doing the procedure through a, such a small incision that you don't need sutures. Don't need and that's sutures. what we're doing since 1985, 86, somewhere over there. And that's called FACO. So with FACO, you put this tiny probe. It's normally about a 2 to a 2.4 millimeter incision into the eye and you break up the lens with sound waves. So now it's emulsified, you then aspirate that, you leave that envelope. And now the difference with ECI, when you did an ECI procedure, the lens was placed on top of that entire capsular bag in what's called the sulcus. But now with FACO, it goes into the capsular bag. So the new lens is exactly in the same place as where the original lens was. It's just very much thinner and very much smaller and doesn't grow. So all that happens then is the capsular bag contracts, grips the new little lens, and that's where it stays for the rest of your life. That is just like, uh, the fact that that was done, I don't know if it's not that long ago, 50s and 60s, even into the 80s, as you said, it still seems like a very, very recent thing to be able to do this kind of surgery. I couldn't agree more, Dave. Yeah, we've lived in the most interesting era, us, our generation, and people like yourself younger than me. It's been the most interesting time to be alive. If you think about what we started out with, I mean, for me, I only got a mobile phone in my 30s, I think. Mm. And my children wouldn't understand what that means. You never had a phone when you, you yeah. couldn't communicate with someone. You couldn't find them. <laughs> Dave's getting his next one uh, next year, aren't you, Dave? Your, your first mobile phone next year. He's very excited about it. But what I, what I love about uh, science is that there's, okay, there's, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants, but there's all, you know, and you you slightly change what the last guy did or the last girl did, and there's it's a progressive procedure, shall we say. But then every so often there's serendipity. You discover something accidentally. I love how they discovered, or somebody, specifically Dr. Ridley, noticed that maybe we could use plastics um, for eyes uh, and for lenses. And Dave, he did this because he just noticed something that went wrong and then kind of went right with the pilot. What happened? Exactly. So he was an ophthalmologist in St. Thomas's in London and eventually worked in Wilfels in London too. And he was thinking all along of trying to put a new lens into the eye. Um, once you've done a cataract extraction and, you know, instead of giving the thick glasses, trying to do that. And glass sort of seemed to be the obvious thing. But then he also noticed that anyone who came into the emergency department who had glass in the eye, those years almost invariably lost the eye. There was this huge reaction against the glass and it just it wasn't going to work. So he was sort of 
not that upbeat about the prospect. And then he also saw pilots during the World War who came in and they got shrapnel from the windscreens, from the hurricanes and the spitfires that had sh shattered. And they might have had a, a piece of glass or piece of perspex from the, the windshield penetrate the eye. He would see them years later when he saw them and he'd see this thing inside the eye that was totally quiet. It was just hovering inside the eye with no reaction. And that's when he started putting two and two together and realizing that the eye's immune response didn't respond to certain types of materials like toast And so the first lenses were called PMMA, polymethylmethic acrylate, something like that, and were made from that. And it's from his observation. Wow. About him, Neil, you were speaking about how we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, when he started thinking about putting lenses in, he was almost disbarred from ophthalmology. He was... Um, disregarded for many years, for maybe 30 years. And eventually, shortly before he passed away, he, he got an MBE and became Sir Harold Ridley. But so sometimes when you're so far out and you're on the cutting edge, your editors just, they don't accept it. It's too, you know, too wild and too weird. Like the idea of somebody f like who had, hadn't got great vision, although you had to have good vision to be a, a, a Spitfire pilot, but maybe, you know, they needed men back in the, the 1940s. He hasn't got great vision. He crashes a Spitfire. The, just the right thickness of lens from his windshield <laughs> goes into his eye and he goes, oh my God, this is amazing. I can see now. People after the Egyptians and, and the Greeks and all the people and the Indians who have done the kind of uh, primitive eye surgery, if you can cast it that, uh, people have always investigated the eyes. Is it true that Isaac Newton stuck a needle into his eye? And his own eye? No. His own eye. So he did, but he didn't stick a needle into his eye, Dave. He stuck it around the eye. Oh, okay. So what he realized, he was in bed one night and it was dark. And he, he somehow pressed on his eye for whatever reason. And when he pressed on his eye, he saw this shimmer of light inside. Can I tell everyone, because I this is one of those weird facts I know. Can I say what that's called? Go yeah. on. Am I right? Am I right, Arthur, in saying that's called phosphines? You're absolutely right. My yeah. word, where'd we go that? Just randomly when You're I was random. searching that's for amazing. facts one time. Yeah, phosphines. If you'd ask me what it was, I'd have to think twice. Yeah, it's a phosphine. <laughs> You're right. That's exactly what it is. So the photoreceptors, which are the rods and cones, essentially your fine vision would be the cones. And then as you go further away, it becomes the rods. All they can do is detect light. That's all they understand. So anything that impacts the, the photoreceptor is interpreted as light. So a natural thing that happens is the jelly coming loose inside your eye. It's called a, a vitreous detachment. Not a retinal detachment, but a vitreous detachment. It's associated with these light flashes. And the same thing, if you close your eyes and light and you rub on it, you'll see there where I'm rubbing, I'm seeing light activity. And that's simply where you displace the photoreceptors in their relationship with the, with the vitreous, the jelly. And that traction is what causes the phosphine. Okay. So what he did is, it's, it's so clever, is he tried to figure out where the retina was. So he knew the retina was at the back of the eye because you could see ahead of you. He didn't know how far it extended around. Mm. What he did with that little probe that he'd stuck in, he would press on the outside of the eye and see where he still sees light activity. And then he knows there's retina on the inside of that. And as he came further forward and he was pressing and nothing was happening, he knew there was no longer retina over there. So he wow. sort of mapped out the retina before people had, you know, seen the retina inside the eye. That's crazy. It's just amazing. Can I, Neil, hijack this for a second and ask some personal medical questions I should probably be paying Dr. Arthur for? But well, What's this podcast for? If, not <laughs> if nothing else. And then we'll come back and I'll tell you about the tooth. But you exactly. go for it. Yeah. Patient zero, go for Patient it. Patient zero, here I am. So Dr. Arthur, I have 
very poor vision in my left eye. In fact, about 20%, I think, is probably accurate. The way I describe it to everybody is it's like I have peripheral vision all through my eye. So I have, I suppose it's a lazy eye, probably what it was called in the 80s. When I first saw, I, I was a bit late in telling my mother that I had this eye issue. I was about six. So at that point, the ocular nerve had learned its pathways and the neurons had made their path. So nothing was going to change in terms of my my vision. Now, it's never affected me. I've, I can catch a ball. I can drive a car. I can do everything. Like it, and I'm so used to it. It's the way I see. And my right eye is perfectly fine. I don't need glasses. I wore them as a kid in a patch in an attempt to strengthen the, the left eye, but it was too late. I'm not that concerned about me, although I do have a personal question about that in a second. But my two of my four kids both have the same kind of condition and they've well, we caught it early because of my history i had it tested and they both wear glasses now and they had them from the age of two and one is now eight and one is ten will their optic nerve be able to learn to see on its own or will they need glasses forever or and if i had left them alone would they end up like me where they didn't need glasses after a certain period of time yeah so dave this is such a fascinating space i mean it's incredible so this is again the evolution of, of how we learn as neil said we stand on, and we keep on learning. So I can't tell you how many people I've told over the years. I wish we picked, we picked it up earlier. It's too late. Not much we can do. So in about 2017, I started working with a company called Ambliotech. And they had um, a very good scientific basis for the treatment called dicoptic therapy. I'll explain to you how it works in a second. But they never raised enough funding to, um, to get approved by the FDA and become a product. So recently, just before... COVID, I got a call from um, an industry colleague and he asked me if I knew anything about dicoptic therapy. And I said, yeah, I happen to know something from this other company. And he said, well, fantastic. Let me tell you about this company out of India called um, Binox. So I was so excited about Binox because Binox addresses exactly what you're speaking about. It shows us that we've been wrong all these years, not for everybody, but for the majority of people with a lazy eye of telling people there's nothing we can do, we're too late. So we have completely underestimated the brain's ability to for neuroplasticity to adapt. Mm. I mean, it's phenomenal. If you think about people with cochlear implants, are they early on hear metallic sounds and within months they're hearing your voice. You can have a yes. mask on, they can hear you over the phone without any other visual cues. So there's a treatment now, especially if the reason for the lazy eye is that one eye, like your right eye, is very, very good and the other eye isn't poor because it was deviating and hence you'd be seeing two images so the brain's got to ignore the one. But rather due to something called anisometropia. So anisometropia is nothing more than your right eye's in focus all the time so the brain uses that one. The left one's out of focus because of its prescription. It's yep. a plus three or a plus four. Now in that situation, Binox has an incredible track record. We've had 45 patients through the program in the last couple of years. It's a remote program. People do it online. Yeah. And it's six weeks, half an hour a day for five days a week playing a, a video game with spectral glasses on. And the way it works is fascinating. So if you 10 years ago came into my clinic and you were at the right age, it's all right, what we're going to do is close your good eye. Yeah. They'd be, be forcing your brain to use the other eye, which it does. And the vision in that eye does get better. The moment you open the good eye, it reverts straight back to where it was because yes. you've done nothing to stimulate binocular vision. Right. So binocular differently. But what it does is it's crazy cool. I love when all these other technologies come into into the medical realm. 
So these engineers and have figured this out for us. And so what it does is what we sort of trying to explain as partial occlusion. So you put these special glasses on. One side's blue or green, other side's red. And the game you're playing is has those two colors in the game. And if, okay. if you think perfectly, you see it 3D. Yes. And if you have one eye laser, you, you don't see it 3D. So now what they do is within the game, whatever's on your good eye, they defocus the image in the game to match the level of vision you have in your bad eye. Wow. So now, wow. first time while you're watching this game, your brain says, I don't quite understand what's happening here, but I'm getting sort of equal information from both eyes. So it starts lifting the suppression off the, the eye it's been ignoring. Oh, the best wow. way to think about that is your right eye has got like a 5G connection to the brain. Yeah. And then I might have it, what's it called, 3G or edge or whatever sure. it's called, but, but a much slower connection. Yes. So now what happens is it starts lifting that suppression and so the vision starts improving. The moment the suppression is lifted, then what they do is they start improving the image on the screen you're watching with a good eye. So now you start lifting, that filter starts lifting and it drags both it eyes drags up. both eyes up. Oh my God. That's so the patients who've never had binocular vision, 90% are developing binocular vision. And those who've always had some, but not a huge amount, are increasing their binocular vision. It's it's crazy, but it's not for everyone. You've got to sure, go through the sure. assessment. The assessment's online. It's it's brilliant. Oh, I am blown away, Arthur, by that. That is just phenomenal. What an amazing use, as you said, of another technology to to apply it to this scenario is just phenomenal. Now, can I stop the teasing at yes, this stage? Please tell them. I have read this why you would put your own tooth in your eye about four times, and I still don't understand it. <laughs> You're the expert, Arthur. Please explain. All right, so I'll tell you where it came from. So many years ago, if you had very, very severe corneal damage on, on both eyes, you wouldn't do it for one eye only, but if both eyes were severely damaged, it's called it a chemical injury. You get exposed to acid in the eye mm. or alkaline in the eye, and the cornea is really in a bad way. So you would normally then think about doing a corneal transplant. But when the cornea is so badly injured that there are loads of blood vessels in the cornea, these, these transplants reject. They just keep on rejecting, and you land up you know, losing the sight in the eye completely and losing the potential for sight. So what people started doing is making small little telescopes and they would implant this little telescope into a hole that they create in the cornea, but they'd always invariably come out and cause trouble and person might get a couple of weeks worth of vision and then finally lose the sight completely. And then someone had the idea of using something totally biocompatible and someone had the idea of using a tooth and then drilling out the tooth centrally where the, the pulp would be and that's where the little lens would go in and you know, shaping the tooth in such a way that it would fit in and then securing that into the cornea. And now it wasn't rejected because it's it's your own it's, tissue. Yeah, of course. So that's where that came from. But I must say, I don't think it's being used anymore. It's not that far, that's not that long ago, but there's a prosthesis now called the Boston Keratoprosthesis. And in fact, the INEA hospital do procedures with the Boston Keratoprosthesis. And that seems to be very, very, very successful. Again, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult eyes and big challenges. But previously, we wouldn't have had a solution. We're now, you know, it's really changing people's lives and going yeah. way beyond navigation vision, giving them a lot more. So, yeah, so you're, so because it was the tooth, and the tooth, as you originally said, was that your, your parts of your eyes are made up of the same material as your hair, your nails, your teeth. So it wouldn't reject you anyway, but the fact that you're using the material that's already it's already so localized even to the eye 
That's a genius idea. It's a very genius idea. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I read that it, it doesn't happen that often in America because of that particular procedure. And as you said, um, uh, the, the Boston procedure has kind of has, has surpassed it. And so the ones I saw were from 2009, I think in 2010, and a man called Martin Jones um, in England. I can actually show him, but he does have his, like the, the, the eye doesn't change. Like you don't take the tooth out. So aesthetically, like it, it does look a bit unusual, but you do have a little part of your tooth in your eye. That's exactly right. And inside the tooth is a little lens. So it's not an open window into the eye. There's a little lens that acts as a window. Right. So it keeps it sealed. And the eye is not in contact with that foreign lens. The eye's in contact with the tooth, and the tooth in turn is in contact with that little lens. And in very specific circumstances, he actually had chemical burns and another woman had very bad scarring, but the rest of the eye was almost perfect. So I think it's very rare that it is used. And um, when I said that you were going to come on the show, Arthur, um, I had an interesting reaction from, from certain people. One uh, one friend of mine told me that he was talking to a surgeon who was, a, like I think, a, a cardiovascular surgeon. And he went, oh, no, eyes. Oh, no. Ugh. Like, like, <laughs> like. <laughs> like like those boys are mad now. Oh no, that's that's really icky. I think do other surgeons think that eye surgeons are a bit out there and are a bit stranger, or is that a reputation you have? That's one hundred percent. I mean it's really over one hundred percent. So, you know, most eye emergencies that you need to deal with, you actually don't deal with them that very same night. For the simple reason you go to the OR or the operating room and the nurse on call knows nothing about eyes. So you land up causing more damage than you do rather than waiting overnight. And the next they're going to theater to a nurse who understands the eye. Right. So, so what would happen is people being on call for eyes are often sitting at home and they're on the phone and someone calls them and says, I've got this issue. What should I do? That's mostly on the phone. Mostly often we go in obviously, but most times you can manage it on the phone. So in many a time you would get a call when we were trainees from a colleague who's doing orthopedics, or surgery, or all of these, you know, the bloody, the bloodies, um, special <laughs> things. Yeah. And they'd say, there's a guy here, you got to come in. There's a guy with an eye problem. And we'd say, what's the eye problem? They say, well, I don't know. I don't have a clue. We'd say, well, how do you know they have an eye problem? He says, well, they've got an eye shield on. I'd say, have you taken a look? And they'd say, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> not a chance. I'm not looking. I'll, I'll cut him open and I'll take out his lungs. <laughs> but I'm not looking at his bad boy iris. Oh, that's, that's exactly so right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Can you draw on the eyeball with a marker if you're doing surgery because that's the other thing my friend told me that his wife was having surgery and they drew on her eyeball with a little magic marker that's exactly right so you know what astigmatism is where the eye looks a bit like a rugby ball rather than a football i thought it was the eye has the wounds of christ that was a different podcast okay (laughs) so when you have astigmatism the eyes look like a rugby ball shape and since probably 2014 somewhere around there we can use lens implants that correct astigmatism. So the lens now optically has the opposite rugby ball shape. You implant that in the eye, so the lens inside the eye is now correcting the error from the cornea, from the front of the eye. But what happens when you lie down is the eye rotates. And some people have the surgery on anesthesia. They have general anesthesia, and the eye can rotate. So you lose your bearings of where's the eye when, you, when you're upright. As a surgeon, you lose your bearings. Okay. Yeah, you lose your bearings. You don't know where your landmarks are. So yeah. this is crazy fact. Listen to this. So I can see the two of you on the screen. If I turn my head, you two are still sitting perfectly upright. If I turn it the other way, you're still perfectly upright. 
So when you're oh up God. at the top, you know, um, walking around and sitting upright, 12 o'clock remains at 12 o'clock. Yeah. So if you were operating um, standing up, it would be no problem. You could just put the lens in sort of where it should be. Now, when the patient lies down or when they're asleep, the eye rotates. And if you put the lens in, for every one degree that you're off target the axis, you lose 3% of the effect of the astigmatism correction. Wow. As little as 10 degrees, which isn't an awful lot, you've lost 30% of that, that efficacy of the lens you're putting in. So what you want to do is you want to make sure you have it right. So what you do now, Neil, is you have the patient sitting upright. You make a mark on the eye that you know exactly where your bearings are horizontal. You know the lens is going at 56 degrees for argument's sake. And then when they're sleeping, when they're lying supine, all you do is you see where your marks were. They could look as though they're not at 180 anymore. But from that reference mark, you now go 56 degrees away to put the little lens oh in. Oh, my God. That's you can make it remarkable. Have you ever, when you're doing that, drawn a small eye in their eye? <laughs> small eye? I want to know, has he drawn a little Mickey? <laughs> no, no, because no, I want them to wake up with a smaller eye in their eye and then just have this, like standing, you know, when you can see the mirror behind, you know, when you can see a million mirrors in a lift into infinity and just mess with someone's head entirely. I'm assuming you're too professional for that, Arthur, are you? Yeah, no, that's not, I can't admit to doing that. No, I'll tell you what some people have done way back, long time ago. It doesn't happen anymore. But you know, you can laser in the back of the eye for someone who has diabetes or has an hemorrhage in the back of the eye. And you do these little laser spots on the retina. Yeah. And what it's doing in a very bizarre way is, in fact, destroying the retina where the spot is to reduce the metabolic needs of the retina. So you have these new vessels that grow in, they get switched off because they become the problem. And so people used to sometimes, once they put in 500 shots, they might just finish off with their initials. <laughs> no more. doesn't happen anymore. Not allowed to do that anymore. Wow. I, I, I don't know if I'm bringing this now. You, you were talking about getting a mobile phone in your 30s, Arthur, but I don't know if you've ever heard of somebody called Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast Oh, is, I do. You do know Mr. Beast. Okay, so Mr. Beast is a YouTuber. He's got the most subscribers to an individual channel ever. I think he's somewhere north of 130 million subscribers. So every video he gets is seen by multiples of the population of this country. And Mr. Beast recently, he does lots of really, he does lots of good on his channel. And one of the things he did recently was he worked with eye doctors because he found out that a simple 10 minute operation can effectively cure people who are maybe not blind, but certainly sight impaired. And he said, right, well, I'm going to get a sponsor. I'm going to get millions of dollars. and I'm going to spend it in the video on improving the vision for not just like a few people, thousands of people around the world. Have you seen this? I have. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, he's an incredible guy. I think I think his videos, he's got a number of videos, been watched something like collectively 30 billion times. Yep. The videos. Yeah. It's amazing. So he spoke to a colleague of mine in Jacksonville. That's where the idea first came about. And he then went to a thousand people across the across the globe where he did this. So it was fascinating. I mean, as ophthalmologists, we couldn't believe it how how much good he had done. He he had made so that was cataract surgery. The, cataract surgery, that's right. Yeah. So he, he, yeah, what he did there was incredible. Where did Mr. Beast come from? Why is he called Mr. Beast? He was originally, when he started, he was Mr. Cub. He built it up slowly. He was Mr. <laughs> Cub. First, he was Mr. Blastocyst, then Mr. Embryo, then Mr. Fetus, <laughs> Mr. Cub, uh, Mr. Scout. And then finally, when he took enough uh, HGH, he became Mr. Beast. I cannot believe, Dave, you you have, we've got one of the four, foremost ophthalmic surgeons 
in not only the country, but on the continent of Europe. And you've gone, let me tell you about this YouTube star. It's very interesting. <laughs> After I ask you about my own very specific medical issues. <laughs> Arthur, it, you're, it's been an absolute pleasure and a revelation in more ways than one talking to you today. Thanks a million. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you both. It's been such a pleasure. I've been such fans for such a long time. Uh, thank you, Arthur. That's brilliant. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Uh, well, Dave, Arthur, one, he's a depressive individual, too. The, the gravitas, the how cool he is, how calm he is, and the information he's imparting makes him the winning package for this. He does. It, it also un- unearths something amazing, uh, which is the difference between you and me. Yes. So while you were impressing him with your reading of um, 1880s uh, eye <laughs> surgery, yeah. You absolute nerd. Yeah. I was able to talk to him about a YouTuber and he was equally impressed by both. I think he was I think he was more impressed by the YouTuber, <laughs> to be honest with you. Like here I am, you know, quoting literally the biggest YouTuber on the planet, talking about all this amazing stuff he's done. You're like, I read a, I read something about an eye surgeon in eighteen eighty and he, yeah. even, he even he's going, Yeah, man's a bit of a nerd, isn't he? <laughs> uh, I mean I didn't need the eye surgery myself, as I'm sitting here in a monocle with a top hat <laughs> and a nice brandy. Yes. <laughs> um, I just thought we needed to cover all bases. That's what I needed. Listen, this is why we work so well together and why I love you. You are the left eye to my right. <laughs> no, I'm the right eye to your left. But sure there you go. You. Absolutely brilliant and uh, the the perfect expert. And that is why you would have a tooth in your eye. And I hope, like, honestly, that for me demystified a lot of stuff about the eye. And I know it's parts of it are quite kind of complicated. And obviously he's such an expert or whatever. But the way he he told and explained everything, like, Hmm. even as as you said, even other surgeons think eyes are ick and weird or whatever. But as he says, like, he explained it all. They're just functioning organs with different pieces and you can fix this bit and you can do that bit and you can draw on it with a marker and you can do all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, the marker thing was absolutely uh, amazing. amazing. You never you never think that your eyes would roll in the back of your head if you lie down yeah. and um I wonder does he if if they roll in the back of their head, does he have to mark a teenager's eyes differently? <laughs> Because I mean, surely, surely between the ages of 14 and 18, like yeah. there is a level of swivel eye there. Do you know what they actually do? They don't they don't develop certain muscles until they come out of it, their teenage years. They actually rotate like slot machines. Oh, it's um, fully. It, it yeah. goes to full. Around, around, around. And every, every now and again, the two eyes stop at the same place and you get an absolute bollocking from your seven-year-old <laughs> and then they roll again. Yeah. <laughs> You have to grab one of their arms and you pull down her right arm and let's see what happens. Um, Dave, it's your turn next week. Um, I hope you can beat Arthur, but I'm still the legacy of your knowledge of, of another Arthur, Arthur Matthews creation with Gremlin and uh, Father Ted lives long and at Thank least you. will Thank tide you. me over until next week and you bring an expert. Yes, I will. I will tell you next week why Hitler, yes, Hitler, had a list of all of the service stations in the Midlands in the 1940s. <laughs> I love this podcast. Where else are you going to hear that? I can't wait to hear that. Nowhere else. You've got to be here. But why would you tell me that? Thanks, Neil. Bye. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.